Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'm <clears throat> just trying to find how to share my screen at the moment. Have you got it? Do you see it on the bottom of Zoom? There should be a share screen arrow in the middle. I've got it. Perfect. <laughs> right. A, how to fix a broken planet. An emergency healthcare plan for planet Earth. Now, among the world's many pressing health needs, the most urgent of all is a plan for human survival. At present, no nation or international body has one. What we currently have is a chaotic road to avoidable disaster, driven by 10 vast interconnected threats, which are all the result of human activity. These threats have been carefully documented by science over more than 50 years. They show that the human capacity to inflict mass harm on ourselves, on our health and on our well-being, and that of the planet as a whole, has increased exponentially since World War II. Collectively, they menace the future of human civilization and certainly its health, well-being and its ability to survive. They are all driven at core by the same four factors, overpopulation, overconsumption, overpollution, and money. The science is in. We've wiped out two thirds of the world's large animals. Several studies show that extinction rates are now more than a thousand times above the normal level. Humans and our livestock make up 96% of all the life on land. We are wiping out forests, wetlands, grasslands and ocean life at rates never before seen. And we are creating new deserts, toxic and uninhabitable regions. We are in effect collapsing the Earth's life support system, the very thing that keeps us alive and healthy. We're losing fresh water topsoil, fish, forests, and other key resources at appalling rates. Human consumption of material resources is skyrocketing. Back in the 1970s, it was 29 billion tonnes a year. That's for all of us. It's risen to 101 billion tonnes a year last year, and it's on track to reach 170 billion tonnes by 2050. All those resources come at a huge cost to our own health and our well-being because of the damage and the pollution that they cause. There is already a world water crisis and it can only grow more severe. There is a crisis in our farming soils, which nobody wants to recognize. We are felling forests and clearing land as if there were no tomorrow, as may very well become the case. We are killing large parts of the oceans and we now use an entire year's worth of the Earth's resources every seven months. We are poisoning everyone and everything on the planet every day, including our children. Our chemical emissions at over 200 billion tonnes a year are our biggest and worst impact on the planet, its health and on our own health. You see my talk on this at the last uh, Real Truth About Health conference last year. 
Human chemical emissions are five times larger than our climate emissions, and they kill, according to the World Health Organization, 13.7 million people every single year. That's one in four human deaths are now attributable to the chemical mess that we've unleashed. They cause about 600 million years of lost human life every, every year. Now, those are people who are just sickened by this, not necessarily people who are dead from it. This is the worst act of preventable homicide in human history. Now, the death toll is twice that of World War II, for example. Yet few people and few governments seem serious about stopping it. The flood of chemicals, nerve poisons especially, is damaging our children's brains. And this may be a reason why human IQ is now falling steadily worldwide and brain diseases are on the increase. And the brain is the most chemically sensitive organ in our body. Uh, it gets hit by everything that's in our environment, everything we inhale, everything we eat or ingest, um, the stuff that comes through our skin. Uh, you can't avoid these things. They're, they're getting into us all the time. We are constructing weapons that can better obliterate us many times over. World spending on new weapons reached $2.24 trillion a year this year. That's more than a quarter of the total global healthcare budget. So we're spending nearly a quarter as much as we spend on health on better ways to kill ourselves. The doomsday clock was recently reset at 90 seconds to midnight, which is the highest risk level since Hiroshima. Now, even a small nuclear war involving say 50 to 100 warheads would kill up to 2 billion people in the famines that followed the nuclear winter. So even non-combatant nations who are right out of it would be very badly affected by this. All countries, in fact, would experience food and health crises if somebody pressed the nuclear trigger in however small a fashion. Now, two thirds of the nations of the earth want nukes banned, but one third of nations want to keep them. Most women want nukes banned, but quite a few men want to keep them. We are shaping a climate that will render the earth largely uninhabitable within a few generations. Climate emissions are still rising strongly, despite all the talk about containing them, about getting back to zero. They will take us past plus two degrees by 2050, maybe as early as 2030, and plus four degrees by 2100. Now, as an agricultural writer, I can tell you, at three to four degrees, world food and water supplies will collapse. And scientific predictions suggest that fewer than 1 billion human beings, that's one in 10, will actually survive. We humans are triggering a vast number of tipping points, which are causing the earth itself to yield more carbon emissions. And there is absolutely no stopping these. There's nothing we can do to prevent them once they're underway. Most frightening of all are the 5 trillion tonnes of methane gas, which is locked into tundra, peat swamps, and the seabed, and is now starting to vent. In the Arctic Oceans, the Canadian tundra, and so on, the gas is rising, and it's coming into the, into the atmosphere, and methane has 30 to 80 times 
the, the heat trapping power of carbon dioxide. So this is a very deadly development. We are building dangerous new technologies over which society has no control. You may have seen the headlines in the last few days about artificial intelligence, how within a matter of years, it, it is likely that we, it will become impossible for us to tell the difference between an artificially generated figure and a real human being. So all sorts of words could be put in people's mouths without us, the audience, knowing what is going on. Like coal and industrial agriculture before them, artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, biotechnology, and global surveillance have the potential to do terrible damage if used excessively or malignantly. And at present, there is no way for society to control these monsters. They are off the leash and they are coming to get us. Several of them, like nanopollution and gain-of-function biotech, have dire consequences for our health and for that of the planet. Now, we currently throw away nearly half our food and we ruin the planet trying to grow more. This means that half our farmers, up to half our farmers, are feeding nobody. It's going to landfill. The present food system is not sustainable because it is destroying the very soils, the water, the climate, and the ecology on which it depends. However, global demand for food is expected to double by the 2060s. So food security is in fact the Achilles heel of modern civilization, something which very few governments appear to grasp. Well, they grasp it in Africa, but not in the West. There is an urgent need to completely rethink the way we humans produce food. I mean, agriculture, wonderful technology, much though we love it, it's a stone age technology. We need new ways to produce food that are sustainable and climate proof. The world population has tripled in the last 75 years. Every year we try to cram another 80 million people into lifeboat Earth, and this is driving all of the other threats. However, human fertility is declining. This is the good news. Fertility is declining in most countries on Earth, thanks to women. Peak population of about 10 billion people could possibly be reached in the 2060s, and a slow decline begin thereafter. However, one third of a billion people are now fleeing from overcrowded countries into more stable ones every year. And there are warnings that the human tide could exceed a billion. So there are 100 million refugees who are displaced by war and famine and drought and so forth. And on top of that, there's about a quarter of a billion people who are just simply seeking a better, safer life than what they know is happening in their own countries. Now, the point is that when Human migration gets up to a billion. There is no country on earth whose borders can sustain such a tsunami. Somehow, we have to get the human population back in line with what the earth itself can realistically carry in the long run. There have been seven pandemics, as I'm sure you're aware, since the year 2000. 
and there is mounting concern now about an eighth, the potential transfer of avian flu to human beings. All these pandemics are the result of human behavior. Overpopulation, mass travel, overcrowded cities, dense gathering places like schools, sports arenas, cruise liners and nightclubs all help to spread disease. So it's our very habits that are the main driver of pandemic disease. Science is also persisting in carrying out some very dangerous and foolish experiments designed to artificially create more deadly viruses. And these are without societal or ethical oversight. We are now unleashing a new plague, usually from a ruined ecosystem, every two to three years and spreading it worldwide like wildfire. 90 new diseases have in fact crossed from animals to people in the last 75 years, although of course not all of these became pandemic. The World Health Organization warns that bigger and worse plagues than COVID are likely. And collectively, the world is far from doing enough to prevent them. And we lie constantly and continually to ourselves about it all. The fossil fuel sector has established purpose-built lie factories and every year spends billions of dollars poisoning the well of public information. Lying and spreading confusion about the climate and the environment and other corporate sectors are copying them. Media organizations that specialize in spreading lies have arisen. They have discovered that misinformation is a great way to make money because there are large audiences of people who for whatever reason prefer lies to truth. And this is attracting corporate advertisers who are thus paying for the lies to be spread further and faster. Now, all of this is polluting civil debate in democracies and autocracies alike around the world and on social media, leading to widespread confusion in the populace and paralysis in government. The decline in human intelligence means that more and more citizens are unable to distinguish between truth and fiction. This is undermining democracy and assuring bad government. The inability to tell truth from reality means that more and more humans are unfit for survival because they simply do not understand what is going on or how to fix it. Instead, they repose their faith in utter nonsense. So for humanity, misinformation could become as deadly in the long run as a nuclear war or climate change, a point which is insufficiently understood by governments or society at large. Now, none of these are the actions of a wise or a healthy species, or even maybe an intelligent one. A creature that wanted to survive would not devote most of its energy and most of its wealth to activities that undermine its health and its chances of survival. Yet humans today are doing just that. Our governments and our corporations seem paralyzed unable to grasp the magnitude of the overwhelming interlinked risks that are engulfing us. 
they certainly lack the essential skills to do so. As a result, humanity is just spinning our wheels <clears throat> instead of getting on with solving our problems. The 10 mega threats that I have listed are all connected. They cannot be separated. They all have solutions. Now that's the important point, that's the good news. We know how to solve all of these things, but they must be solved all together at the same time. Solving them one at a time will not work. And there are some solutions of one threat that will make other threats worse. We have to avoid that. Now, as I said, all of them are consequences of the sheer scale of the human enterprise, overpopulation, overconsumption, overpollution, and money are the chief drivers. Mostly, they stem from the 101 billion tonnes of resources that we now devour to support our lifestyle. So that's 12 tonnes of stuff that every single one of us on Earth uses every year to support that lifestyle. And the damage this process is causing to the health of the entire planet and ourselves. Now, the good news is that solutions to all these threats already exist. And that's why I wrote How to Fix a Broken Planet. So that people will know that complex problem, though it may seem, it is amenable to solution. And so people will also know that there is a lot that we can each do in our own lives as individuals, as well as members of a larger society. These threats must all be solved in ways that do not generate fresh perils or make other threats worse. We have the brains and we have the technology to save ourselves. The bad news is we do not have the governments, the leadership or the will to do so. No government on earth has a plan for overcoming these risks and securing the, the, uh, the human future as the Council for the Human Future has warned. Most of them, most governments and many people are not aware that such a threat or, or such a need exists. So poorly do they understand the messages that science has been delivering to them over the last 50 years. And so effectively have selfish interest managed to mislead, confuse and frustrate action. In the book, I explain the scientific understanding of these risks, but more importantly, I list all the main solutions which governments, companies and individuals can take in their work and in their own lives to make ours a safer, healthier and more sustainable world. This amounts to a first draft for a world plan of action for human survival. Now, it isn't the complete answer. No short book could provide that. And I hasten to add, these are not my ideas. They are those of scientists worldwide, the best scientists, who have thought deeply about these issues over decades. It is therefore a summary, an outline of what the world's wisest minds now consider we must do together in order to survive. It shows that thinking and acting our way out of the biggest crisis ever to face humanity in the million years of its history is entirely possible. Furthermore, it is positive. It encourages hope, prosperity, healing, 
and opportunity. Among the several hundred solutions proffered for policymakers, governments, companies, groups, and individuals, here are my top dozen, just as examples. They should not surprise anyone who has considered our situation objectively. First of all, we need an Earth System Treaty, addressing all the catastrophic risks and open to everybody, not just nations, but every person to sign. An Earth System Treaty is a legal compact, a legal instrument signed by nations and every willing individual that commits all of us to work for a safe, healthy, habitable planet for our children and their grandchildren. It's a planet where humans live within the rational, safe boundaries defined by science, not the dangerous, toxic, unplanned world defined by greedy, uncaring enterprises. It is an agreement to work together to overcome each of the catastrophic threats that are the result of our own actions, but whose consequences now cannot be avoided. There is already since 2021, a United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So far, 92 countries have signed it and a further 68 have ratified it or agreed to it. But 70 countries, including all the nuclear powers, still cling to their support for potential human annihilation. This is not good for our health. Those who study the issue of nuclear weapons are agreed that if the world has them, it will use them sooner or later. Already, the major nuclear powers are trying to convince themselves that the limited use of nukes is possible without escalating into a full-blown world holocaust. This is a dangerous fantasy because there have been absolutely scores of nuclear mistakes made in the last 70 years to testify that mistakes happen. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has set the doomsday clock at 90 seconds to midnight, and that's the highest danger level ever. And that is because of recent advances in nuclear weapons technology and the growing conviction among the warrior class that they can be safely used. Quite simply, if humanity is to survive a civilization-shattering conflict during this century and potential annihilation, then every country on Earth must agree to eliminate these weapons and all their technology. There is no intermediate position. Three, an end to the use of fossil fuels to stem both climate change and global poisoning. Now, leading climate scientists now consider that humanity must end its use of all fossil fuels. That's oil, coal, gas, tar sands, you name it. By 2030, or face an out of control climate running to a hothouse earth. A hothouse earth is an earth that we cannot inhabit. Gradual reform and slow transition will not work. Current greenhouse policies are far from what is needed in, in almost all nations. So without a goal of ending fossil fuel use, the soaring costs of climatic turbulence will destroy the world economy and kill millions. However, a bonus from eliminating fossil fuels is that the largest source of poisons on the planet 
the one that's killing 14 million people a year, will also be eliminated. So much of the sickness that is discussed at this conference, the cause of it will be removed. Thus, ending the use of fossil fuels is the greatest public health measure we could possibly take, greater even than supplying clean water to everyone. It would represent the biggest advance in human health and well-being in history, and it needs to be considered in that light as well as uh, fixing the climate. And furthermore, it is entirely feasible. Clean energy, green chemistry, zero waste, green oil, hydrogen and plant-based medicines are already available and can replace fossil fuels in most applications, whatever the oil lobby may be telling you. A circular world economy, which wastes nothing and reuses everything, is the answer to the looming scarcity of key resources. Now, for most of our history, we humans recycled our wastes, nutrients especially. Now, I'm a Homeric scholar and Odysseus in the Odyssey, uh, basically when he got home at the end of the Trojan War, um, he walked past his old dog who was sitting on the dung heap outside the door of his house. This is 3,000 years ago, right? But there was a dung heap outside which contained all the kitchen waste and the crop waste, things that people threw away. And every year they forked that back onto the fields that grew their food for the next year, onto the olive trees and things like that. So people have been recycling nutrients for a long time. In the 20th century, we stopped doing that. We forgot how to recycle. We have got to learn it again. When the human population begins to shrink in the middle of this century, there will never be a need to open another mine. Think about that for a moment, because every single mineral and source of energy that we need will be available in the waste stream. And you will be able to extract it from the waste stream far cheaper than you can get it from digging a hole in the ground. So we have to re-extract and reuse all of the minerals and uh, building materials and things like that. Um, and it's already happening. I mean, your, your smartphone is recycled. The, the 50 or 60 um, minerals in that smartphone are being reused. It happens to your aluminium drink can, all of those things. Let's just apply that principle to everything that we use. And then we can live in harmony with the earth. Furthermore, as we recycle more, we move our economy out of its focus on producing material goods and into a focus on ideas. That is the creative economy where jobs shift from making things to doing things and imagining things. The human mind is inexhaustible, right? So there's no end to the creative economy, whereas a material economy, there's an end when the things it uses run out when the timber runs out or when the, when the oil or coal runs out or the metals run out. The creative economy uses far less energy. It causes less pollution and sickness. It provides greater happiness and quality of life. It lifts us out of the grubby industrial existence that we've had for the last hundred years to a healthier, more satisfying plane. Likewise, renewable food for everyone which will sustain all of humanity, and it will dramatically reduce the threat of war. Because two thirds of all wars basically 
uh, fought as a result of arguments over food, land, and water. That's what's going on in Africa today. The renewable food revolution is going to be bigger and more exciting even than the renewable energy revolution. It's going to catch on faster. It's going to employ far more people. Um, you know, and it's going to engage people's enthusiasm and interest. And these are some examples of, of um, you know, people's concepts for the renewable food revolution. It has three legs to it because we can't on, go on using the Stone Age system called agriculture. First of all, we have to go back to regenerative agriculture. That is a farming system that restores, repairs and cares for the environment in which it exists. Secondly, we need urban food production. And that is a system that takes all the nutrients and all the water that are currently being wasted by our huge cities. And bear in mind that there is no city on earth that can actually feed itself. Uh, basically turns those nutrients and water back into renewable climate-proof food. So that the cities end up largely feeding themselves. And finally, deep ocean aquaculture. Now, this is a new technology, and it's just coming in. But basically, the farming, the mass farming of sea plants and fish in very large-scale ocean ranches uh, away from the coasts uh, can provide an inexhaustible source of nutrition for humanity, one that doesn't pollute, um, one that doesn't poison the oceans. Unlike coastal aquaculture, which does concentrate nutrients and chemicals, close to the coast and it poisons the uh, the water column. Deep ocean aquaculture does not cause those problems. It's becoming more and more feasible and there are some wonderful ideas out there for how we do this. Deep oceans, the deep oceans can supply at least a third of the food that humanity needs. So each of these methods, regenerative agriculture, urban food production and deep ocean aquaculture can provide one third of the world's Need food needs sustainably and in largely climate proof conditions, and that is going to lead to a dramatic improvement in human health because there's going to be a much higher proportion of fresh, nutritious plant foods in the diet. Now, if we don't need to farm any longer, we can turn half the earth back into wild wilderness. A stewards of the earth plan for the rewilding of half the earth, as suggested by E.O. Wilson, run by farmers and indigenous people, and that there's a billion small farmers at the moment who are being kicked off their farms by the big supermarket chains and industrial food combines. And there's half a billion indigenous people around the world who simply want to put their environments back. So there's one and a half billion people ready to do this. All we need to do is fund them. If we implement the renewable food revolution that I've described to you, and we grow two thirds of our food in the cities and the deep oceans, we can return more than half of the world's land area to forests, wetlands, grasslands, and woodlands. And that is going to help to reverse the sixth extinction of wild animals, insects, and birds. It is a complete win-win. To manage this transition, we can make use of the skills and the wisdom of a billion small farmers who are currently being destroyed by the industrial food system. 
and half a billion indigenous people worldwide who love and understand their own environment. So instead of wasting $2 trillion a year on bigger, better, nastier weapons to kill ourselves, we could pay these farmers and native people to repair the damage to global landscapes caused by agriculture, climate, and mindless development. This is the stewards of the earth idea. So let's heal the planet by putting back all the many living things that we have so thoughtlessly eliminated, and it will be the greatest planetary health initiative ever. To deal with the toxicity problem, we need to clean up the earth plan including a new human right not to be poisoned. We need to end the mass poisoning of humans by other humans and the horrific damage that we are inflicting on the health of our species and on our children. And to do that, we need to build a new world alliance of organizations, and there are already many of them, who are dedicated to cleaning up our planet, our food supply, our air, our water, our homes, and our consumer goods. Now, because global uh, poisoning emissions are five times larger than climate emissions, we need to create a body like the IPCC for chemicals. That is a global body to register, monitor, and test the safety of all the 350,000 chemicals that we now use. Now, there is no chem safety testing for most of these chemicals at the moment, and that's a, a dreadful oversight. We don't know what is bad for us. We need a body that will measure their impact on our health. Now this is going on sporadically in universities around the planet, but nobody is looking at the big picture. So it's a really alarming gap in our understanding of ourselves and of the planet. Now, up until the 19th century, all of our ancestors, every single one of them, enjoyed a relatively clean, chemically unpolluted world, a far less toxic world than the one we've made today. And I believe we too should have such a right. We need to introduce into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights a right not to be poisoned. Only such a right will focus our governments and corporations on their responsibility not to kill us. Number eight, we need a world population plan, providing voluntary family planning for all. You know, for just the cost of one single nuclear submarine, we could provide family planning to every member, to every family on Earth, and so end the population explosion. Now, family planning is entirely voluntary. No compulsion is involved. It provides the advice, contraception, and healthcare necessary for families to plan their own size. Voluntary reduction of the human population is both feasible and far preferable to the catastrophic crash caused by famines, pandemics, and wars, which will follow our overpopulation of the planet. Wise women around the world are already doing it. They have cut the birth rate from 4.4 babies per woman down to 2.4, and it is still going down. Okay, within, within a matter of years, it will be below 2.1, below replacement. 17 countries worldwide are actually shrinking 
in their population size. And despite all the panic by economists and others, they haven't fallen over or collapsed. You can shrink a country and still have growth in its creative economy. So, you know, this is not something to be feared. Uh, it can be done. And it will be greatly aided by the philosophy of one child fewer. That's a, a philosophy where people say, well, if I was going to have three children, I'll, I'll only have two. If I was going to have two, I'll only have one, and so on. So people voluntarily decide that they will have one fewer baby. As well, I might add, as the growing trend, and this is a, a marked trend in places like Japan and China and North America, um, for young people to say, we want no children at all. We fear the world into which we would bring our children. So we will just we will have none at all. And that's that's a very largely growing component of, of the youth opinion these days. We need to pay attention to it and we need to honor it. Number nine, we need a world pandemic plan to prevent and arrest the uncontrolled spread of disease by human behavior. The best thing we can possibly do to prevent future pandemics is reduce the size of the human population, because that's it's packing people together that causes disease to spread, and to re restore the natural world that we are ravaging at the moment, because that's where a lot of the new diseases are coming from. But we also need to change our behaviors that are conducive to the spread of disease. And that means far less mass travel, better ventilation in our buildings, less use of mass facilities where diseases can be transmitted from cruise liners to sports arenas and childminding centers. Now, greedy, selfish, and thoughtless people will howl at having their toys taken away. But does the right to travel, for example, include the right to kill others by spreading disease? Those are the sorts of ethical issues we need to ponder. Now, humans have survived and done very well for a million years without all of these toys. We can do so again, if it is a question of survival. And, you know, we're traveling today, aren't we? We're traveling on this Zoom conference from all over the world. I'm addressing you from Canberra in Australia. Uh, you know, so humans can travel without leaving home. It's perfectly feasible. And you can have all the fun and, and even more, uh, see even more sights than you can if you were in a coach or a, or a, or a bus. We also need a, a pa better pandemic early warning system. Uh, the WHO has said that. And we need to stop scientists from making deadly new viruses for fun or money or whatever reason. Number 10, we need a global technology convention to oversee all the powerful new technologies before they are put to dangerous misuse. Now, if we have learned nothing from the use of coal and agriculture, industrial agriculture, it is that we need to be very cautious about the potential damage that can be caused by uncontrolled use of new technologies, such as AI, such as nanotechnology, which is a, a new form of pollution. I mean, uh, at the moment, every single one of us is a, is a guinea pig in a huge nanotech experiment. These microscopic particles are getting into the human blood supply. They're getting into babies in the womb. They're getting into our brains. 
you know, that and plastic particles and things like that. So we're creating huge health problems for the future, which we don't even understand at the moment. Surely, surely we should adopt the precautionary principle with regard to technologies like this, rather than just unleashing them everywhere. Now, these technologies cannot be controlled one by one or by individual nations. I mean, if you had the most perfect regulation in the United States, it still would not protect you from these things coming in, in imports or on the wind or whatever it is. So individual countries having good laws is not the answer here. We, we do need that, but we also need a global body to oversee the development of all technologies and, and basically assess the harms they might cause as well as the benefits that they can deliver. Because, you know, when you talk to scientists and technologists who are developing them, they always tell you about the good stuff. They, they never tell you about the downsides, right? And indeed, many of them are not paid to research the, the, the downsides or the bad effects. And even if a, a technology has good effects, there is nothing to stop a bad person or a bad organisation or a criminal organisation or a rogue state from misusing it and turning it against us. So we need a world body to regulate all human technology now because it catches fire so very, very quickly um, and it changes all our lives. So we need this world oversight body that looks into all of these things and it warns us about the dangers in good time to act. Number 11, we need a World Truth Commission to expose the liars and their lies to public shame. Throughout history, one of the most effective ways to control rascals has been the public exposure and shaming. With the spread of misinformation now crippling government and endangering the human future, we need a world body to expose the liars and the wrongdoers. A World Truth Commission would be a body charged with fact-checking the more outrageous claims of politicians, billionaires, corporations, and other people in power, and exposing those who abuse their position by misleading the public. And unless you've got an umpire, a referee, somebody calling the shots on these people, they're going to go on lying to us through the media, through social media, and so on, and we're never going to know the difference. We need to have them fact-checked for honesty and integrity, because clearly honesty and integrity do not exist uh, at the highest level of most of our corporations and governments at the moment. We also need a world body, which I call the World Integrity Commission, which can tell us which corporations and which websites can you trust. Now, as individuals, you can't tell from looking at a website whether it's telling you the truth or not. You have to do an awful lot of background research, and most people don't have the time to do that. So we need a body that gives you a gold seal if you're a truthful organisation and no seal at all if you're a dishonest organisation. So basically that, you know, we, we, we need a way of calibrating the honesty and integrity of people who are promulgating information or manufacturing things or whatever. We need it for universities, for example. Are they, are they telling us the truth or are they just working for industry? So, you know, we, 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 def we desperately need 
a fact-checking commission that can that can actually validate the integrity and truthfulness and honesty of organizations so that the public knows who they can trust and who they can't, whose products to buy and whose products to shun. Now, if you do that, that will apply marketplace discipline to corporations that are doing the wrong thing. So I, I believe that that is going to really influence how people buy. And because, you know, you vote several times a day. Every time you spend a dollar, you are voting for the future and the health of your children and grandchildren. So if you bought a sustainable product, you're, you're increasing the, the, the chance of a healthy future for your grandchildren. If you bought an unsustainable product, you are decreasing their chances of surviving on an unhealthy planet. So this, this is, these are essential roles, and they need to happen at the global level so they are not polluted by domestic politics in nations. Number 12 we need an earth standard currency to try to correct the rape of our planet by an infinite supply of otherwise non-existent money. Now, when humans disappear from the earth, what will happen to all the money? Will it still be there lying in a big pile? No, it won't. It'll disappear with us. It's purely a figment of the human imagination. But water is real. Forests are real. Fish are real, the oceans are real, the climate is real. We are using imaginary currency to destroy things that are real. And if you have an imaginary currency, you can have as much of it as you like. Every time we get into trouble, you know, a bank fails or something like that, what do they do? They just print more money out of thin air. Banks and central banks create more money out of thin air. And this money then becomes a roulette chip, a gambling chip, for all sorts of players, money marketeers, and so forth, to gamble with. It has no fixed value. So, you know, basically what we have is an infinite supply of money on a finite planet. And that means we're going to run out of planet long before we run out of money. An Earth standard currency, on the other hand, is not based on the say-so of governments, on central banks or, their or the wild gambles, of the money market. It is based on scientific measurement of all the things that the earth uses to support life. That is a breathable atmosphere, a healthy oceans and healthy forests, a clean environment, and so on. And you can measure these things scientifically. And if your money was based upon that, it would go up when you improve your management of the earth and it would go down as you mismanage the earth. So it would constitute a real signal to people uh, to get their act together and do more to protect the earth for their grandchildren. So it would make all of us investors in a safe, healthy, sustainable planet. Now, there are a great many other actions, and I list about 200 of them in the book, that can be taken and must be taken to mitigate the danger in which we now stand. As I say, the How to Fix a Broken Planet lists the best of them, and they're ideas from scientists, not from me. At the heart of all of this, as I stress, there is an Earth System Treaty, which is a legal agreement by all the world's people, which commits all those who sign it to working for a habitable Earth and a healthier human future by addressing all 10 
of the megathreats. The treaty would commit us to living within the safe planetary boundaries defined by Johann Rockström and his colleagues. The answers to the human emergency do not lie in business as usual, in government procrastination, in the corruption of public discourse, the, poisonous, the poisoning or overheating of an entire planet or the destruction of nature. They lie in employing the chief attribute which has saved, which has guaranteed human survival for over a million years, wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to read the future accurately and to take action in good time to achieve a better, safer, healthier outcome. Self-evidently, the world's governments, intent on the rivalries of yesterday, are not yet interested in this or able to achieve it. Instead, it must be driven by the wishes and concerns of 8 billion humans united in a desire for their grandchildren to survive on a world that hasn't been reduced to a charred ruin by human negligence and greed. Today, we have the means. By 2030, all 9 billion of us will be online. We can, for the first time in our history, join minds and have a conversation across an entire planet. That's that we're creating a planet-sized mind to think about all of these problems together. We can think together as a species, share ideas for what is to be done, encourage and uplift one another. Saving our common future will be, without a doubt, the greatest and noblest undertaking in the long ascent of human aspiration and achievement. It is a task worthy of us all and which cannot be completed without the cooperation of all. I urge you, I implore you to get behind it. Ladies and gentlemen, the earth is a lifeboat sinking under the pressures of overcrowded, limited resources and fearsome demand. We can either row it to safety together or we go down together. The choice is stark and it is now before us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was a, that was a very powerful presentation. Um, so before we begin with our, our Q&A session, uh, I just want to find out where uh, where the audience can find your book. We have it available on our website, but where, where are you able to find it? Uh, Amazon.com or uh, Cambridge University Press. Okay, excellent. And anything on social media that you'd like to share? How people can find, you know, find out more about you? And, and I'm tweeting about all of these issues every single day. Uh, basically, um, delivering the science, the, the new science that is telling us about how bad things are getting and how we can fix them. 